delicious. There is more. Mm. Delicious. How that. could you possibly know that it was a lemon loaf on on account of the fact that it was loaf shaped and well, tasted like lemon, and, and it was introduced it was by loaf. Rory as being a lemon loaf? I, I can hear that. Lemon lure. <laughs> lemon lure. Because it's uh, what from, else could it have been? Just east of Oldham. No, it's that's a, that's my Camp Yorkshire accent. Oh, is it? Yeah. Mm. But the, the Lancashire Based on accent. Kate's grandma. The Lancashire accent is essentially to add an R after every vowel. Yeah, that's right. So, a drink of cork. An egg has a york. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is courtesy of a colleague, Michelle Livesey, uh, a former colleague, Michelle Livesey, who's from Preston. Is who, she married to Tony Livesey? No, she's not, funnily enough. Although they are both from Lancashire. It must say, be a Lancastrian they, name. They must be related in some way. Which is way back. Way back when, um, yeah. But yes, that's, that's how she are taught me to say it. Are you related to everybody it. called Smith? In some sense, yeah. <laughs> in we some have, sense, as in they have the same name. We have a common bond. Put it that way, me, Alan Smith... The other Alan Smith. Uh, That's the only Smiths around, aren't they? There's, do you know? Mm. I've always thought there's surprisingly few Smiths in football players. Not that many. There's more Allens than Smith. There's loads just of in Alans. one family. Did you play against every single Allen? Alan Smith was a very scary young man. He's, he's, he, he used to when the ball was at the <laughs> other end of the pitch. Alan Smith, when he was at Leeds, played against him when he was at Sheffield Wednesday. He used to stare at you. The ball was down the other end of the pitch. <laughs> he used to stare at you like this. So you'd look down the pitch and then look back at him, and he'd still be staring at you. Very strange. Very strange behaviour. Just that. staring at you or one no, other players. He might genuinely did it to everyone he got close to. He just stared at them, trying to put them off or something. It didn't work with me. So what I meant was the Allen family rather than Alan Smith. Oh, Clive Allen, Paul Allen, Dave Allen, Dave Allen. Um, how many, let's do all the Allens. Clive Martin Allen, Allen, Paul Allen, Martin, Martin Allen. Allen. There were more than that, though. Bradley Allen. Bradley Allen. Alan Allen. 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 Are they all the same family? Um, no. I think most of them. They were brothers or cousins, Paul, Paul and Clive, Clive and Bradley, I get the feeling, were. Clive was a lovely man. I see, yeah, lovely I see, man. I see Clive quite regularly. He's, He's a lovely man. man. I'll, I'll, I'll check for, with him. Former I'll kicker for the London Monarchs, Clive Allen. <laughs> I get confused between Bradley Allen and Bradley Walsh. The, well, the light, the light entertainer from are, Primetime TV on Saturday. They're similarly accomplished footballers, I think. Brad, Brad, yeah, Bradley Walsh was a... Was he a player of some sort? I don't know. He's always in those charity he games. Loves, loves a charity game. Like Ralph, Bradley Ralph Little. Allen, I can tell you, lives in St Albans and has a uh, child at the same school as our mutual friend Matthew Billy Bailey, one of the uh, best men. He, they, they, they tend to have sideline chats about soccer. Uh, pretty much every weekend. Billy's oh. very much the ghost in the machine of this, yeah, of this podcast. Yeah, I was just about to say, he's, he is Features uh, a, lot. a regular mention. Out of, uh, uh, with the exception of the four of us, he's the one that gets the most regular Do, mention. Oh, is does he the Hugh, fifth member like Pete Best? Does Hugh talk about Billy more than he talks about Gemma? Yeah, definitely. I think he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's only probably Billy's to Gemma's liking, frankly. Yeah, probably, that's true. But Billy's been part of his life for longer. Gemma has got to earn that right. Oh, yeah, she, mm. yeah. That's she true, is yeah. a mere peripheral figure in my current life. Don't know. No. Best not. Is that Best why she doesn't not. like mentions? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Um, I have to say that the food has been provided by Rory, and I think he has excelled himself mm. to the point that it may well be the best ever. No. Provided by Rory. Yes. No. <laughs> Would you like to uh, take us through not what, what has been a, a sumptuous selection of Mediterranean metze? The, the best food provided metze. by Rory for this podcast was my Hunter's Chicken Stew in like, week four. Uh, the first time I hosted, when we were all still trying, before we set, <laughs> yeah, settled into this, still Hang on a minute. this Nick, rut, Nicky still trying. settled yeah. into this rut of a relationship <laughs> that, um, that we are now in. 
Um, this Marianas Trench of the, a relationship. Exactly. We, we, we're just... We're kind of... Excellent tectonic references from we're there. Yeah, spend, you like that there? Yeah. We're at that stage in a relationship where we spend all of our time in our pyjamas and just don't try to have sex. The... Um, the <laughs>
that helps your brain learn something else yes. which is related. So it doesn't have to necessarily... That's why we're making the distinction between football intelligence mm. and actual intelligence because mm. you can have information given to you that is not necessarily related to football at all, but the brain training that that helps you to do then helps you to take on instruction of a footballing nature. Well, I did Latin at school, so Caecilius est in horto, matrum pater est in cubiculum. Clearly, that helped me become a sensational left-back. <laughs> so I am the perfect example I cannot think how those how two things would be more similar. Mr Gracie, though, I used to behave very badly in his lessons. He used to give me lines and everything, but I used to, we, oh, we had a great relationship. But anyway, yes, I do think the, the ability to... But is it, are some people capable of learning whether it be learning how to play football or learning Latin. about maths or English or Latin, are some people, it is, they cannot do it. They simply, so there's limitations to how far they can go in life. And then also clearly on the football pitch as well, how good they can be. Why are you smirking at me? Mrs. <laughs> Chinch is veering really, really much closer to the subject of eugenics than ever. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> should put some people just be put down? Is no, that? I didn't say that, did I? But I, it's like with, does Pep Guardiola come up against players where he thinks... I'm trying and trying here, but I'm getting absolutely nowhere because they, they do not have the ability to take on what I'm asking them to do. I don't do. know, but having watched Nicolas Otamendi play football, <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> no, so I, so there's, what a broad, what a wonderful broad subject. Um, it's good, isn't it? That point about if you learn one thing, it helps your brain. What, you, what, what you're doing by learning stuff is, take, is teaching your brain to function in a certain, certain, certain fashion. You're fusing synapses and all that business. And... Yeah, as you, the, the more you learn, the more capable you are of learning. Definitely true. Definitely everyone should learn Latin. Basically a cheat code for, for about six modern languages. Greek less so. Greek is just a cheat code for Greek. But <laughs> it does also... So you, you could just learn modern Greek. But if you want to go and play for Panathinaikos or Olympiakos, I assume it would become a new Well, yeah, but the only word of Greek that I remember is eleftheria. It's classical Greek, not, not modern Greek. Eleftheria means freedom. It's the only word I remember. So when you said to taxi drivers when they let you out, it's very embarrassing. Uh, the in, in Greek's defence, yeah, um, because my dad is a, 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 a retired. So you're, you're now defending a whole language, <laughs> yes, are you? Yes, of Latin and Greek. The amount of words that have their derivation. Well, I was going to say that. That was going to be my Greek. next point. Well, uh, that, that that you would know is very much a theory of thinking. Are we yes. getting slightly off topic here? <laughs> we are. No, are we going to swing this back? Well, no, I, I think very very quite wildly off the track of a football podcast, quite frankly. Just, just, yeah, but people shouldn't think that we're kind of one-tracked people. Let's, I'm, let's I'm, talk etymology. I'm a rounded, which is a Greek word. I'm, <laughs> See? I'm a rounded person, despite what several people think. No, and, and the, the, the sort of, uh, what's the word? The, Any more of that lemon loaf, you'll be very rounded person. I know, yeah, it's dangerous. But no, I, 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 it's a subject I'm really, really passionate about, that people should learn ancient languages because of their relevance to the modern world. But the general principle is, is correct, that the more you learn, the more capable you are of learning. And I think there's two things that are really important here. One is that football now, the level of detail the coaches go into, these huge packs of information that the managers have ahead of every single game, which they then have to sort of boil down and pass on to the players. The more of that information that they can boil down, that they can think the players can understand this, the better the better prepared you are. And the more the players take in, mm -hmm. the better prepared they are. So having the capacity to learn information quickly and sort of concisely is really important. And it, a lot of the stuff that players are getting told is hard. You're learning stuff by row, it's movement, you, your movement as they relate to the movements of other people, yes, yes. and this ball that's whizzing about everywhere. It's hard stuff. So I, I think that 
generally, I think footballers are becoming more intelligent. I think they are being asked to think much more, and that as part of that, they, they, the academies and their teams and their coaches are tending to favour sort of natural selection process, tending to favour more intelligent players, even if the technical level is slightly lower. The other thing that I would, I think this should be prefaced with, players are not stupid. There is this perception based on people who don't like football watching England matches in major tournaments that all footballers are thick. And it's because when they come up on the screen afterwards, after a defeat, some embarrassing defeat to some, you know, to a much smaller nation, they say... Like an Iceland. Like an Iceland. Just well, there's, for a, there's a long list. <laughs> but the... The question is always, you know, you must be disappointed with that, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm... And it's Rooney's, the impression I'm doing a Stouts, the reason I'm doing a Stouts accent, it's just Rooney's the best example. Rooney, this 18-year-old kid or whatever, or 22-year-old man goes, yeah, you know, really disappointed, didn't, you know, obviously wanted it to be better than that, and uh, disappointed to go out. And then people who don't like football go, these footballers are so thick, aren't they? Look, they've lost a game, and this is all they can say. And it's, it's the... It, it infuriates me. Just the reason that footballers don't sound very intelligent in those in those flash interviews after games. It's just the questions are so basic. And there's not not, if, not anything else you can say. There's nothing else you can say. Are question. you disappointed? Yes. Yes. What else do you want? But also, uh, it's it's and this might be uh, an issue beyond the realms of this podcast. But it it is often the accent of the the player, as you mentioned, yep. Wayne Rooney and David Beckham had it thrown at him because of his his voice the notes that he struck with his voice and, and now of course recu- everybody's forgiven David Beckham for that because he has become sufficiently mainstream so yeah. they don't judge him by that anymore and we would recognise a regional accent in, a, in an English or a British player more readily than we would if they were Italian or Spanish, where their, their their dialect would be, you know, harder for us to decipher, of course. Yes, and we we've mentioned before. I think the likes of, for example, Carlos Tevez. Mm-hmm. If you hear him speak Spanish, we we also know Antonio Valencia yes, speaking example, Spanish. Yeah. We don't speak Spanish, Steve and I, but we've heard. And Roy, you do speak Spanish. We've heard from both people who have spoken to them in Spanish, and obviously we can hear at least to an untrained ear that that is a Spanish the likes of which we don't hear from other Spanish speakers. You know, they have accents, they are heavy-tongued mm. that make it just yeah. exactly the same thing, but not, not to our ear, so we don't make the judgments the same. Yes, those, those are the sort of players whose uh, ability or inability to learn English is maybe being questioned, but actually yeah. that they, they're not that accomplished in their mother tongue. So like an awful lot of English people who struggle to learn a foreign language, they're just a couple of examples of footballers who, who have, have struggled when they've been in England. So but Valencia, so clearly, Valencia clearly must be quite a bright bloke. I've never met Antonio Valencia. But he must be. I, I suspect that, as with a lot of South American players, his formal education perhaps is not as as it might have been. But he must be quite a, quite a bright bloke to a have achieved everything he's achieved, b to have moved to a foreign country and kind of settled in, and c to at the age of about twenty seven learn a completely different position and adopt a completely new body shape <laughs> and be very good at both. I think. Yeah. But you're right to preface this conversation by saying that they're we, not stupid. Footballers it, are not stupid. It is. We are having a conversation about intelligence and about whether players need to be more intelligent, but that does not uh, necessarily mean that we are saying that they are not intelligent, and we are also saying that we get frustrated with the assumption that they are not intelligent. Exactly. They. I, I've never met. Well, I've only met a handful of players who I think mm, you're maybe not the brightest tool in the box. But, I mean, as, as in any walk of life. There's plenty of journalists, if I'm completely honest, who I don't think are particularly bright, mm. which I probably shouldn't say. Hopefully none of them are listening to it. This, the journalists that I think aren't bright are not the sort of people who listen to podcasts, so we'll be fine. <laughs> well, you but, can name names in. 
How long have we got? Let's do an entire podcast on people I think are thick. <laughs> and then what you don't realise is that this now, me talking, is after a 45-minute edit <laughs> taken out of the uh, recording. No, so there's, there, are, there are players who are not particularly bright, but the, the way that we assume footballers to be unintelligent is wrong. What I think the, the, the core of the issue is, is probably should there be more of an emphasis in their development on as Andy says, on education away from football because it could give you a competitive advantage. And I mm. think the answer to that question is yes. So that, that we're assuming that there is at least some football intelligence, if we're going to use that phrase, in pretty much all footballers. And that is how they become successful footballers because I would imagine there are plenty at the fall by the wayside who don't have that, that mental, that cerebral ability because you have to have a combination of both to be a successful uh, footballer, particularly at the top level. So we're now asking about whether then an extra level of exterior intelligence, if you like, if that isn't becoming too uh, convoluted. Is it an accusation that we can level perhaps more at English football or British football? Where I mean, I, I agree that football, uh, footballers are going to and have become more intelligent the way, you know, because of the way the game has developed physically, mm-hmm. you've had to develop mentally it, to coincide with that. But there does st- still seem to be a disparity in England between this idea of, well, you either physically accomplished and therefore you will will do well in sport football whatever or you know you focus on a on a more mental path we don't seem to have an attitude that those two things must at some point coincide and it's very important for modern football as well because the way that formations have changed because when i played 4-4-2 i was taught how to play left back in a 4-4-2 because there wasn't any other way really of playing so it was very simplistic i didn't think about any other positions on the on the field how i could affect how a central midfielder might play or a centre-half. I just worried about playing left-back. But with the, the change in systems and with so many coaches flip-flopping between systems in games, the demands on players are a lot greater to understand, well, now you're going to play right-back, now you're going to be right-wing-back, now you're going to play as an inside foot. Are you able to take this on and understand what I'm asking? So they have to think so much more quickly because of the, the, the way formationally the game is, is, has changed. So it, it's one principle remain the same that effectively you are being coached Mm -hmm. to play the game but because the game has advanced and the way that it's played has changed so dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years that you you need to be able to absorb so much more information that you know a, a a player of 30 years ago, you know, if you suddenly were able to transplant them into the modern game, they'd mm. be completely, yeah, their, their that, brain would be... It's that you know, versatility me- that you need. Yeah. Yeah. You need versatility to play different positions and to play different positions, you have to understand what that involves, understand what the players are doing around you. So that takes a level of intelligence. And this is what the this is what I, I feel as well. If, they, if learning away from the game as well... It enables you then, hopefully, if you understand why that process is taking place, maybe 18, 19-year-olds don't really want to do it, so they don't understand why it could be beneficial to them. So how you get over that hurdle of explaining why this is happening? Because you could say, well, this is about developing you as a person, developing your brain, that's going to help you be a better player. There's not many 18, 19-year-olds would probably say, okay, I completely understand that, I'll throw myself into it. Whether it's, if we talk about English young players, is it a cultural thing? that they, they just want to be training for a couple of hours in the morning and then go off and do their own thing in the afternoon in their nice cars and back to their nice houses and watch films? Or do they... Is it, we have to change the culture, the way that people think about themselves as well. That will then enable them to comfortably go into another environment and learn something new, which again, in turn, will make them much better footballers. So should we take a case study along the lines, actually, that you two have just been saying, Steve and Andy? Raheem Sterling, young player incredible potential so much so that he was plucked out of 
the QPR youth system by Liverpool, mm-hmm. developed a little bit further in terms of his footballing ability at Liverpool, and then Manchester City paid 45, 40, yeah, 45 million pounds mm-hmm. for him roughly. He's played for England at the age of 17, continues to be an, an, an England player, and continues to uh, play for Manchester City. But since Pep Guardiola has taken over, there has been, and it's been obvious to me watching games, he has had to take extra time particularly if Raheem Sterling is on his touchline, to tutor him almost play-by-play, if you like. And sometimes there being a, a bit of a frustration that what he has attempted to impart has not been acted upon. For the fans, I think, of Manchester City and, and England as well, but England obviously don't see him quite so much, there is a, a, a real frustration about the fact that he seems to be an instinctively brilliant football player, which raises expectations, gives an, an impression that his level is incredibly high. But then the moment where he has that extra second to think yes. or to make a decision that hasn't occurred to him immediately, that a, a mistake is made or the wrong decision is made. Is that then of a player who, as I say again, and not to to do down on, on Raheem Sterling unnecessarily, but he just seems to be a good example. He is a brilliant footballer. He has great talent, great skill. But if he were to have that extra level of intelligence, particularly at the club that he's at at the moment, where he is with a with a coach who is attempting to make him into a better player and fit his system better and also clearly improve the team. If Raheem Sterling was to take time out or had taken time out when he was younger to explore those parts of his brain that might have not necessarily been explored, Mm. he would be a better footballer right now and then become even better as his career progresses. Well, there is still time for him to adapt. But as I said right at the beginning of this chat, um, some players maybe, no matter how hard you try, can only go so far. They, they, They do hit a ceiling. Yes, he has all the potential physically with his pace. He should score a lot of goals. He will cause defenders or should cause defenders a lot of problems. But if he's being taught how the, how he can make that happen and give teams more problems, yet he is struggling to take it in and then put it into practice on the field, that is what is so frustrating for Guardiola because he knows everything is in there. But if his level of thinking or ability to take in what he's asking of him, he could be unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. And the problem is when you're playing with players that City have who are so visionary, like Kevin De Bruyne, like David Silva, they have that ability to to play a pass and you should appreciate that they have seen you even if they haven't looked in your direction. That's that split second where that makes all the difference. And for players like Sterling, I know he's, he's blindingly quick, but playing at Man City, you don't necessarily have to be. As long as you appreciate a pass is on its way, those types of players will find you. So it's being on the same wavelength of really intelligent players who have seen the movement or know where you should be. If you're slightly off the game, even a second will make all the difference. But it's his ability to take in instructions and learn how to improve himself. And it is all in his head. It's nothing to do with him physically. He can't can't do anything more. His technique's good. He's pacey. It's all about putting himself in better positions to, to be a better player. And then he can learn how to finish. He can work his technique on, on beating goalkeepers and stuff. But it's that he, more than anybody else, would benefit enormously if he had the ability to take more in. Roy's going to come in in a second, but just quickly, uh, microcosm of that. Um, we were both at Manchester City against Everton yes. earlier on in the season. Yes. Had a, had a chance, mm-hmm. two touches, ballooned over the bar. Yep. Had a chance, one touch, yeah. no time to think. Really good goal. I, I was commentating on the game. It's exactly what I said. When it's instinctive and he doesn't have to think, it works brilliantly. But in a football team like Manchester City, you do have to think. You have to think what other players are thinking and what they're looking for from you. And that's why your level is intelligent. Just of thinking of thoughtfulness has to, you have to step that up 
if you're going to be successful in that team. Wilfred Bonny was another player who I think physically, technically wasn't able to step from Swansea to Man City because the players around him were playing on a different level to him and he really struggled to appreciate what was going on around him. Raheem Sterling is, is better in my eyes than Wilfred Bonny, but he's still, it's another 5% that he can get out of himself, which would make him an unstoppable player. But at the moment, he seems maybe he has his own limitations as to how good he can be. And that's why Guardiola is probably really frustrated with him because he knows it's in there. And if the penny would drop, as I say, he could be unstoppable. He's not discarded him, though. He has, no, he's no, continued no. to work No, with I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't get the impression it's necessarily... I don't think he's, he's perhaps as sold on Sterling as he is on, say, Sane or someone like that. I think there's a... That there is a part of working with Sterling that Pep has found frustrating. I think intelligence is maybe the wrong word for it. I think what what we're actually talking about is capacity to learn, isn't it? Which I think Chinch said, and it's that's something that can be trained and mm-hmm. it can be honed and it can be kind of improved as you get older. Although it should be kind of encouraged when you're young. And you, what Steve said earlier about kind of elsewhere, is there more emphasis on the academic? And I I, I think it would be wrong to um, to pretend that like in Germany everything's perfect and all the kids are going to school and they're all getting straight A's or whatever they get in Germany and the and then they're going to play football and it's all this brilliant football and then they're going back to school and they're doing the homework and they're doing the homework on the right wing when they don't have the ball and <laughs> and they're not like the part of the problem the part of the problem is is to do with it, is situational effectively so if you're a kid who's 15 and you think you're going to be the next great striker for Borussia Dortmund you're probably not paying attention in chemistry that's not going to happen does your there's a limit to what you can expect a child to do and kind of spend loads and loads of time putting loads of extra effort into their schoolwork while simultaneously dreaming of being a footballer. Probably not anywhere. But there is definitely more of an, an emphasis, I think, in the way the academies function in relation to schools in other countries. Germany, Holland, Spain. I don't know about Italy, I've got to admit. They don't really care about young players in Italy. They wait till they're at 30 and then say, ah, have you seen this exciting new player at Sassuolo? He's 34. <laughs> and the, um, He's already played 200 games. <laughs> the, uh, maybe we should... Make him captain for the World Cup. Yeah, let's do that. The, but I think in Germany and Holland and Spain, there is more of an more of an emphasis on you kind of have to do your schoolwork well to play. And I know there's certainly in Germany there's players who are sort of knocked back down through the ranks a little bit if they they let it slip at school. They are kind of told that there is a direct relationship between their opportunities they will have and their school grades. But there is also a cultural thing that we probably shouldn't ignore, which is just to do with kind of. I don't know the status of school in this country to an extent that there isn't. It's not. I know it's a horrible cliche, but it's not cool to to read books. It's not cool to be in an orchestra correctly. Uh, <laughs> the the it was um, very very cool as a teenager. I think you'll find very very rawry. cool. The how do you think we learned how to talk to girls? Uh, <laughs> wasn't aware either of you ever had. <laughs> uh, the um, yeah. So the. I think there is a cultural issue in terms of how we view kind of academia in this country and also yeah kind of our our relationship to to intelligence and developing that capacity to think and things like reading and, and all all that stuff so a lot of clubs now have most clubs now have linked with private schools which is clearly through in their academies which is clearly an attempt to say to the parents look you're not just get your kids not just going to have a chance of playing for Liverpool or Man City or Arsenal they're also going to get to go to this amazing school is but having for show though well having spoken to players who are doing it I'm not convinced they, they actually go to that many of the lessons if I'm completely honest um, uh, I want to uh, because we're going to be doing at some point um, uh, a big 
series of podcasts on on youth football and and, and academies. So we'll we'll park the, the the part of the players' development. We'll we'll yeah. park talking about it for a long time, but we'll, we'll yeah, park that aspect of it and, and move on to when they then get within the the adult system. But, 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 once but, but yes, continue. Point. Once they've kind of not not taken that chance to develop the, their other interests at school, it does limit you. And I think if you, the Guardiola, this is the long way around to this point, but if you looked at Guardiola's teams at Bayern and at Barcelona, one thing that they both had in common was quite a high proportion of, of footballers who are intelligent men, basically. So Philip Lahm, mm-hmm. really, bright, really, really bright bloke. Xabi Alonso, really bright bloke. Mul- Thomas Muller, really bright bloke. Uh... Not all of them, obviously, were particularly intelligent. Um, David Alaba, really bright, really bright bloke. So, and the same with Barcelona, Sergio Busquets, Andres Andre, Andre Iniesta, Gerard Piquet. They're intelligent people. They're not, Xavi. 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 But there are also players who you would consider not quite as intelligent who didn't prosper under Guardiola in the same way. And in fact, they, they butted heads, you'd yeah. probably say. Dmitry Chidorinsky, for example. The <laughs> first person I was thinking of. The first person anyone should think of when they think of Pep Guardiola signing defenders. Um, I was thinking more of Mario Mandzukic, for example. Yeah, yeah, OK. Um, yeah, and it, well, I think that he had un- uneasy relationships with quite a few players because... But it's partly because he is, rightly or wrongly, he asks for a lot of complexity from his players. And I think he needs more intelligent players to do that. And I think that is the way it's going. So it's actually in the players' interests mm. yeah. to be as capable of learning and of taking on information as possible if they're to play for, for any of these super coaches. I think Conte's the same. I think Mourinho's probably the same. Certainly in defence, he's a little bit more kind of do what you like and attack. And if you looked at those countries that we talked about, Germany, Holland, to an extent Spain they are doing things in their academies that are designed to link that that more more academic intelligence with football intelligence so whether that's kind of virtual reality training as at Altmar the PSV Eindhoven in their academy are doing lots of brain training sort of cognitive training to try and make players more situationally aware and to teach them the concepts that they need to understand whereas in England I'm not sure that we're kind of ready for that so the game has decided, in those particular examples, the game has decided the answer to our question, does intelligence matter or the capacity to learn matter? Yes, it does. And they're going to make sure that it counts and that they are ahead of the game. I spoke to someone at, I think it was PSV. Like, well, I did a piece on this uh, earlier this year. I spoke to someone at PSV who said that technical, tactical, physical, you tapped out. We have hit the peak. Players aren't, can't get technically better. Not, not a, a little bit, but not a huge amount. Tactics, there is a limit to the number of ways you can array 11 men on a football pitch. And physically, you do, it, the, the major leaps have been made. The boundaries aren't, aren't there's not many huge boundary pushes now. The next sphere, they are convinced, is mental. That that, that is how you take, get a competitive advantage. I'm really worried then that this is something that in 10 and 15 years' time, we're going to be still talking about English football catching up with. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. from what you've said about Pep Guardiola and Raheem Sterling is almost, as a coach, do you not need to take some responsibility for that situation? And with respect to a player like Raheem Sterling, if you don't believe he's got the capacity to learn everything he needs to learn, would it almost be better off putting him out of his misery? He can't be part of your plan. We're back on, on killing players. It might, it, might take, it might take three to four that's years. The, that's yeah. the hinge it's too late. late. No, it isn't my way at all. I never promoted that idea. But it it'll take too yeah. long for him to get to be the finished article. Co- City need it to be happening a lot sooner. Yes, coaches change with much more regularity 
than a squad of players does. But Manchester City, in their current guise, are, are surely always going to have a a super coach of, of some sort, whether it be quite as successful, you know, whether Pep Guardiola's successor will be quite as well established as, as he is, who knows? But they're, they're surely going to have that kind of attitude towards coaching their players. Mm. So it, it, does that make Raheem Sterling a bad signing for Manchester City? Should clubs not be looking more carefully at the type of players they're signing? Well, well it was pre-Pep, so... Yeah, but... but no, but Pep was involved. Even as far back as Rangtel, it was the there, whole year there, before. There was... As, as far as I know, there was a kind of, is, is this the sort of player you'd like to work with? Yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, j- just because Pep wasn't at the club then and might have left City before Raheem Sterling does, doesn't necessarily mean that City can't look at that situation and make a more considered decision about the kind of players mm. they're signing. They need to have the mental capacity to be able to take on board the amount of information they're going to get from the coach. And if not, there will be other pl- other places they can play in the top flight mm. of, of English football where they can rely much more on their 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 street football skills, their instincts, and have a successful career like that, because Wayne Rooney certainly did. Mm-hmm. That's just something I remembered, actually, when I was at Everton, one of the first times, probably the, the very first time that I was sat down, or a team or a squad was sat down in front of a screen to watch another team play or watch an individual play, a player, was Willie Donachie at Everton. We were, we were going to be a team that pressed from the front, so we, we went back to Goodison Park after training one day, everyone's thinking, what the hell's going on here? Sat us all down, we watched Gianluca Vialli play for Juventus, how hard he works as a centre-forward. And I remember after we'd watched, it was about 45 minutes or so, and obviously players were discussing things. And I remember Willie, after it all finished, he actually came and said to me, why do you think we just did that? And I said, well, I presume because you want to show centre-forwards and a team how to press. He said, yes, part of it is that, but part of it is whether you're willing to sit there and watch it. So we were watching you watching the screen to see how you would react to being given something new your reaction to it, your ability to take it in and understand it. A few of the players were kind of messing about and didn't want to be there. So he said, again, that was a very first point of experiment for them to see the ability of a group of players, task them with something they've not done before, see how they react to it. It's not just about watching it, it's, it's how you watch it and your willingness to actually take in what's on the screen in front of you. And I just remembered that and it's probably the first time, not the only time, of course, it happened a lot after that, that started to become natural and players wanted to watch what other teams were doing. If we were playing at a team in a couple of weeks' time, we'd sit and watch videos of what they'd been doing. And it became natural. But the first time we did it, the coaches wanted to see how the players responded to watching it. It wasn't necessarily all important about what was happening on the screen. Is this the footballing version of if you want to help, don't give a guy a fish, give a guy a rod, teach I think him how to fish? It is that, yes. Yeah, yeah. In that a lot of young players are being spoon-fed yeah. information. Yeah. Do this, do this, do this, don't question it. Or the difference, perhaps, and I don't know whether there, there must be a whole load of managers out there who have thought this through and decided that, actually, I'm not going to spoon-feed. I'm going to give them enough information for them to be able to make their own choices. I'm now going to do my oblig- obligatory um, reference to NFL, mm. where there are, there are two aspects of this conversation where it's quite relevant. First of all, the, the college and high school system, you have to you be... You have 36 minutes, by the way. <laughs> It'll be a lot less than that once I get rid of all the rubbish <laughs> that's happened. Um, you have... You can, only, you can only get a scholarship to a college if your high school grades are right. You can only get through college and graduate, obviously, if, you're, if your grades are right. So the sporting mm. achievement runs parallel to, to you having to get your score. Yes. Um, but then also there are certain types of coaches who rely on players to make their own decisions. You yeah, see it in yeah. rugby union as well. Clive, that was the Clive Woodward's thing. He said, mm. this is the, the framework within 
which I would like you to play. But once you're out there, you're making your own decisions. Yeah, there's only, the there's only two decisions to make in rugby union. <laughs> kick whoa, it off, whoa, whoa. Don't do you I start that again? Do I kick it? Well, there's only one in rugby league. Do I run and then grunt and then charge into a man who's like shaped like a large rugby brick? Rugby league isn't a game, a game based on decisions. It's not pretending to be a decision. <laughs> yeah, no, you've got to count all the way to six to work out when you've got to give the ball over to the team. <laughs> so you've got, you've got a framework within which you make a decision, but it is your decision to make you know adhering to a certain series of principles and in, mm. and if you've got uh, a play in american football you are looking at 11 players on the defense you're figuring out how best to counteract that then you have four or five sometimes receivers running lots of different patterns you've got to decide which one you've got your first look your second look your third look your fourth look and then you've got to make you know yeah, s- yeah. a series of decisions yeah. and clearly having gone through a college a high school and college system where you have had to probably you haven't wanted to but you've had to at least engage your brain in a non-sporting manner mm-hmm. that must help you and actually there are plenty of players who even get that far through the college system yeah. and everybody considers them to be a, a physical mountain a, a genius of athletic proportions but they fall by the wayside because they haven't got the mental aptitude to be able to play at the highest level there is a differentiation that is made because of that, because of the game that they play. In football, mm. are we getting to a point where players are going to be required to more and more make decisions yes. like that so they are judged yeah. on their general capacity to learn? Well, this is what Willie Donaghy, remember another conversation I had with him, he said, what do you think the role of a coach is? What do you think my role is as a coach in coaching you? And I said, well, it's to tell me what to do. And he said, well, yes, th- th- of course you cross, you jump over those hurdles, but it comes to a point where you can do it for yourself. I teach you, I give you all the tools so then you can go and teach somebody else to do the same thing. My job for 10, 15 years, not to sit on the sideline telling you which, where to pass the ball, where to run. I coach you so you have the ability to do it for yourself. And it's that ability to think for yourself. If, and that's what I realised. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I just presumed a coach was there to tell me every single ball that I kicked, every game that I played, what to do. It isn't. It's for me to understand why I'm being coached in this way and then realise I then take that on myself and make decisions for myself. Teach a man to fish. Well, do you know, <laughs> you know te- saying teachers, that. Teachers have always got a kid in their class that they don't like, that they always pick on to answer the difficult mm. questions in front mm. of everybody else. I started to feel as though uh, yeah. Willie Donaghy was the teacher <laughs> Willie was and, uh, absolutely. And, and Chinch was the, was the student. Because normally like you have, you think much. coaches, managers want to be omnipotent. They want to mm. be controlling everything, telling everybody what to do all the time. But Willie was saying, no, we've got a lot of work to do. But there comes a point when I've done all my work with you. You should understand why we're doing it. And he kept asking, why am I telling you to do this? Why are we practicing this today? Why are we working on this? And it was so you understood and then think, right, I don't need you to tell me now because I've been told, the penny has dropped, I can go off and do it. That, that's his role. It's passing on that information for you to go and use yourself. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a competitive benefit there as well because you, you obviously, in a game situation, they, they, they are trying to train your mind. Mm. Either by inst- trying to re- rehone your instincts, or by giving you the ability to make a conscious decision, to make the right decision yes. as often as possible. That's what they want you to do. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I don't know how many. I'd be. I'd love to know how many coaches nowadays even take that approach. So Rafa told me there's a story in Rafa's book about one of his first days training at Liverpool, where he he got them onto the pitches at Melwood, the squad, and said, "Right, can you just uh, sprint?" to the end of the wall, like across two pitches and sprint back to do that 10 times and then we'll, we'll get going. And they all duly ran off, apart from Hossamy, the otherwise limited right back. <laughs> and Rafa, Rafa sort of blew his whistle and said, said to the, the others who'd all sprinted off, come back, come back, come back. And he said, sort of said in, his, in that sort of stilted English, sort of said, why on earth do you think I'd make you sprint 
20 pitch lengths. That's not good for you. It's a stupid thing to do. The only person who did this right is Hosami, who stopped and said, why? <laughs> why should we have to do that? You, and it, the, the message was that Rafa wanted his players to understand... To always feel that, A, to always feel that they, they could ask why he was making them do something, mm. but B, to understand why they were doing everything, yes. rather than just thinking we're, we're dogs, we have to do what we're told. You're not, players aren't dogs, they're, 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 they're conscious beings. Well, so is the dog, actually. Hector's asleep <laughs> at the moment, but he's a conscious being, very much a mind of his own. I don't know whether Pep, want, and it's a genuine question, you, you read some of the stuff about Pep's methods and it, I think a lot of it sounds like it is this is what you do in this situation he's, th- he's doing the thinking for his players which is interesting uh, that might be wrong it might, there might be a more collegiate approach I don't know um, other coaches I think Mourinho in attack is very much kind of make your own decisions you have, free, you have freedom in attack also out of the defence and we'll get great intelligent players like, like Lukaku and Mkhitaryan and Rashford and whatever and they will make the, the, the correct decisions in attack Klopp, don't know. I think Klopp maybe is a bit more kind of this is how this is when you press, this is how you press. Don't know how collegiate their approach is. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say, this is going back about 20 minutes. Uh, you mentioned, Hugh mentioned the fact that players might start being selected by intelligence. That is already happening. Certainly in Holland, they think, they, they, they can read the readouts from cognitive exercises, which not everybody believes in. Not everybody believes that cognitive training is a thing, but they take into consideration kind of a player's general intelligence aptitude because they, they kind of think that's really important. So a lesser player with a brain has more potential yeah. to the club than a fantastically possibly, gifted possibly. technical Dep- player with, the, with an inability to It learn. depends how bad the player yes, is. Yes, of course, yeah. So, mm. yeah. Th- but there so is young a Rory Smith... You can be Einstein, but you're absolutely awful <laughs> at control so and I always, so, Chinch, I always read the game quite well. I just don't, didn't have any talent to take that information and do anything with it. I understood what I was meant to be trying to do. It's quite unusual, that, isn't it? Yeah, I was too far Most people have a modicum of talent at the no, game, but no you just tended to understand what was going on but couldn't get just involved fully in it. understood what was going on. Always just behind the game. Well, almost like latter-day Steve McManaman, where he's telling everybody what to do but not really doing any of it himself. <laughs> Go there! But, but no, I think so that is... Pointing that, behind that, his back, back, by the way, oh, Chinch is just... Uh, all-time classic. T- telling Michael Tarnat <laughs> to go on the overlap down the left-hand side as if Michael Tarnat, 33 years old, left-back, hadn't been doing it for the last few years. Well, I'll do it behind years, my back so the opposition so can't see me. I'm pointing behind my back because I've got an idea. Was, I've got an idea. There was a great City, uh, city fanzine cartoon. Remember that, that, that had that sculpture outside the, the stadium, the Bee of the, the Bang, bang yeah. which was just like a huge metal sculpture with... You know, basically, yeah, it was it basically like an explosion, yeah. like spikes, wasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. There's a, and there's a young City fan saying, "Dad, what's that? That big, tall, pointy thing at Manchester City Stadium?" And he goes, "Son, that's Steve McManaman." <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen, the point behind the back. We, we, were, we were commentating on that game, oh, Andy and I. And, hilarious. And we generally, I, don't, I can't remember oh. what game it was and whether the game was entertaining or not, <laughs> but I swear about the, well, the following 30 minutes, that's all we talked about. <laughs> he's pointing. He's pointing again. This time he's pointing for somebody to stand six feet to his right so he can pass it to them. <laughs> they weren't going to do it otherwise, Steve. Thanks very much, Andy. Oh, you, you, you were making the point a minute ago, Rory, about the, whether a, a manager is is willing to hear opinions but not necessarily act on them. Mm. Every opinion is valid, but nobody's opinion is as valid as mine. <laughs> the, the kind of authoritarian approach. And, and I just wonder if there is sometimes a bit of a block to a player's ability to develop because the manager feels 
he knows the right answer, regardless of whether he's asked the player to think for themselves or not. I think. Well, I don't. I mean, Chinch is be- better to kind of speak on that than I am. I, I think that players ultimately have to do as they're told. But there is probably it, it is of benefit to everybody if the player has been persuaded that the thing they are being told to do is the correct thing, rather than the player thinking, "Well, he wants me to." Steve McManaman wants me to overlap, but what I actually want to do is is move into central midfield. And I think it's very Michael Tarnat that. Very. That's exactly what Tarnat was trying to do. No wonder Steve had to corral him <laughs> into doing the correct thing. So, yeah, I, I, I think there is there is a benefit to that kind of collegiate approach. Still giggling, Chinch. Chinch is still... It's very distracting. <laughs> Sorry. Come on, Tarno. Come on, Tarno. <laughs> Overlap me. What? Oh, God, I wasn't thinking of doing that at all. The, Sorry, right. we should move on. No, move so on. I, I, th- I think that it probably does limit a player to an extent if a manager is constantly telling them exactly what they have to do. Then it's probably better for the player in the long run if they are encouraged to think, of, think for themselves within the framework of the team and that gives you that spontaneity. You do it quicker. If you think... if that, if, As I say, if, if your instincts have been re... re- tuned, then you're more likely, to, more likely to play Twitter and that's what ultimately gives you an advantage, is doing something by instinct without waiting. Just quickly, because Steve's got a point to make, um, on that note, the school of total football from the 1970s, Ajax Holland, is that essentially, because you know more than me, you lot, is that essentially, you know the framework, but within that framework, mm. every decision, every decision, almost every decision is your own. Is that the, the zenith of that way of thinking? Yes, but what, that, what required intelligence there is Johan Nations had to look at what Johnny Rep was doing and think, you know, Johnny Rep's run off into <laughs> to being a right winger, so I better go and fill in left back or whatever. And that was Vim Serbia has suddenly disappeared as a striker. So I better go rea- and go. A reaction, a reaction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like sort of like shadow play in training yeah. that your next move was always determined by what one of your teammates had done. And you needed, there was like half a dozen different eventualities and you needed to be able to react instantaneously to whichever sort of part of the yeah. process was happening in front of but you. But then those young Dutch players, they, a left back would play right wing, would play central, to understand, was, was yeah, that they, true? So they were given, you're not just a left back, like I was just a left back, play left back, learn how to play. I never played in midfield. Or, certainly, so you then understood maybe the dynamics of a game a lot earlier in your development than, that than I would have ever done. That definitely happens at Ajax now and it did, I think it happened at Ajax in the 90s that they all had spells playing different positions. Yeah. It was, I think, it, I think, a lot of the total football stuff is slightly overdone. They weren't all running around all over the place. There was, there was no. There I mean, but they had they it. had occasions to play but different they, positions. I think they had been taught kind of this is what it's like to be yeah. a def- you know a midfielder. This is what it's like to be a forward. I think they yeah they were given chance. Well, that, to that's more like the modern game and like for Sterling yeah. to say, well, you're going to play as a right winger and inside forward. You're going to play as a centre forward. You're challenging him to play different positions. If maybe you learn that, the younger you learn that, if you have the intelligence to take it on board, then you're going to be a more rounded player. Yeah, these these footballs weren't all super intelligent that they were able to adapt instinctively it was that it was that ability to learn the process and that, I suppose I was thinking it's 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 more that ability to adapt yeah. rather than an intelligence that might be crucial for footballers going forward because of that very sort of like island state that we've got in England I wonder whether our footballers growing up don't quite have that same instinct whereas we obviously look with envy abroad at young players who clearly have it in their mind that they might end up playing in a different country. Mm. So they're going to have to learn a new language. They're going to have to have that ability yeah. to, to move away from home and, and settle elsewhere. Whereas we often make, make excuses for an English player and suggest, well, it would be crazy for them to go and live and play abroad because there's no way they'd 
be able to settle in a foreign city or to, to learn to speak the language, to be able to communicate with their coach and their, their teammates. So actually, rather than saying we're looking for a, a new, more intelligent generation of footballers, that our footballers are going to have to have that willingness to adapt and to take on information. But the, yeah, does that ability to broader, adapt come from... Yeah, into, yeah I did broader minds yeah yeah and as ever we're probably talking about something that uh, get get in touch in a generation's time and let us mm. know if that's uh, actually happened um, any thoughts on this of course always uh, get in touch with us at setpiecemenu on twitter or setpiecemenu at gmail.com but don't uh, die for your phones or your computer fingers just yet because Andy Hinchcliffe is sat to my left hand side <laughs> your computer fingers <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I think I need to uh, increase my capacity to learn better ways of saying that. Uh, Chinchy, I'm a soccer story. It's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story when Andy tells us a tale from his playing days, or indeed any days, with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Chinch, to you, please. Smith has something to say. I was going to say, use, oh. your, use your speaking mouth. So I'll use my speaking mouth <laughs> use for your this speaking bit, mouth. which you're pointing at with your computer How finger. about this for alliteration? <laughs> Fullback falls foul of footballing fashion. The only time in my career... I ever thought, I play for England, I can play a little bit. Do you know what I'm going to do today against Arsenal? I'm going to wear white boots. <laughs> white boots, I put, no, this is the, the story. In the 1980s? <laughs> no, this was the game when De Canio, do you remember oh. De Canio pushing the referee over? Mm. Mm. So, when was it, 1998, something like that? check for all those people who are Paul Olcott was, yeah. was pushed over. The only game I ever wore anything other than black football boots was right? in this game. I, I, why I did it, I don't know, but I put white boots on. And we actually beat Arsenal. Lee Briscoe scored a brilliant goal. But Arsenal, it was that great Arsenal team. On was Henri was in there. But the story is myself and Emmanuel Petit. Mm. Wearing white boots and playing with a white ball. The ball got played to me. One of the few times in my career that I've com- completely done an air shot and completely missed the ball. And I'm convinced it's because I didn't know where my foot ended <laughs> and the ball started. <laughs> because I had white... I'm genuinely... It never happened in any other occasion. I went to kick the ball. Emmanuel Petit was closing me down with his ponytail flowing. And I went to kick and completely missed the ball. And then had to run and retrieve it and then just put it out for a throw-in. What would Emmanuel Petit have thought of me? What a foolish... He can't even kick the ball properly, but it's because I couldn't see where the end of my boot was and where the ball (laughs) started. That was my excuse for missing the ball Did that stop you wearing white boots in the future? Yes, I threw them away immediately after that. I couldn't wear them again. It's too embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I wasn't good enough to wear white boots. You know, certain players, I know all players wear colour boots, but you have to be a certain type of player. And I, I must have thought, you know what, I'm going to stick the old white boots on today because I can play a bit. I couldn't even kick the ball properly. I bet Vim Yonk was laughing at you, wasn't he? Oh, Vim. He was such a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> such a disposable culture these footballers have, though, isn't it? No, no, oh, those throw didn't away. work for me today. I might not have thrown them, them away. The Lashed them on have, eBay. I might have given them... Given, no, pop me. I think eBay, did eBay exist? Yes, it would have done. Um, no, I wouldn't have done that. Who would have bought them? eBay would not, eBay eBay would not, not have existed, existed then, this during your football career. This is the 26th of September, 1998, uh, according no to eBay. Wikipedia. But yeah, the only time, and that was the game that... Uh, because that would have been a big story from that match. Myself in white boots missing <laughs> yeah. the ball. Yeah. If Paolo... But then when we went into the dressing room after the game and we sat down with Paolo and he said, um, do you think I'll get punished for this? <laughs> so Paolo, in the English game, no one has ever laid hands, let alone push a referee to the floor. And he said, oh, they'll probably give me a couple of games. 11-game ban he got. <laughs> so he really... He wasn't sure if he'd get yeah, punished. He sat in the dressing room and he just said, how bad is this? Do you think I'll get banned? Do you think you'll get banned? You pushed the referee. He said, yeah, but in Italy, it's just... It's fine. You Did know, he apologise? No. 
he came and trained separately to us and then he left for West Ham. He never played for Wednesday again and he seemed to blame Danny Wilson and the club for not doing more. But what what on earth more could you do? Danny shouldn't have allowed him. He brought his own personal trainer in and trained like an hour after we trained and did all his own stuff. He shouldn't have been allowed to do that. So he distanced himself from the club and eventually went off to West Ham. But yeah, he was convinced that, you know, pushed the referee over, but he, he pretty much deserved it. Yeah, but you can't do that, Paolo. <laughs> did, did, you, did, you say, did you thank him personally, though, for, for distracting everybody said, from your white boot nightmare? And he said, well, at least it, uh, it took everyone's minds off your white boots when Emmanuel Petit closed you down and you missed the ball completely. Well, do you think it was playing with the likes of Paolo and Benito Carboni that made you want to wear white boots? Might, actually, yes. Yes, it probably did. I, I saw myself. Complex, but that changed my mind. He didn't see Paolo Di Canio miss the ball quite as beautifully as I did. Ever. No, but equally, you never saw Andy Hinsliff push over a, refer- a referee, did <laughs> That you? is true. That is true. I treated official them very, Limited very talent. Well indeed. Very much a gentleman. Yes. Mm. The, the story of Andy Hinchcliffe, that is his book title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> White Boots. Copyright it now. Thank you uh, for another winning soccer story. Well, there were two in there, to be fair. Yeah, on a day that you won the football match. as 1-0? Well. One, one it was 1-0. Lee Briscoe chipped David Seaman. It was a delicious goal. I celebrated like a demon. Didn't play any part in the goal. I saw David Seaman the other day, and a do. David Seaman is like a normal human being, has been inflated <laughs> to one and a half size. Mm. He, not that he's fat, he's not, not, not a... Not, not an ounce of fat on him, but he is absolutely enormous. Kate was there. She have a ponytail still? And she, no, no, it's gone. It's really dapper. Oh, okay. Kate was there, and she said, she recognised him. She went, "That's safe hands, Seaman." And <laughs> it was made me laugh that she used the term "safe hands." The so I, I referred to him as "safe hands" throughout the evening. But she went, "He is absolutely enormous." Does he is everything about him is. Larger than life. He's got a very deep. He's still, he's really deep. Really deep he's still got a really deep. Yorkshire, but yes, he's such a yes. nice man. He is a nice man. Yeah, I was with him with the England squad. The he was f- very nice. First time I met David James, not mm. to not to try and outclang you, I felt exactly the same thing. He, that man's shoulders are wider than most people's doors. Mm. I've got a David James story as well. You don't want that now, do you? That's for the next edition of Soccer Story. Uh, Please do subscribe, share, rate and review and continue to get in touch if you can via setpiecemenu um, at gmail.com is the email address at setpiecemenu on Twitter. We do humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Andy, Rory and Steve and to you for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Sorry, Rory's just telling me about how he went so running that, with the dog or Hector, walking with the dog. Hector has gone to sleep again and Chinch was asking whether he'd been walked today. So I was just confirming that, yes, he is walked first thing every morning for about an hour. Are you doing some of this interval training, though? No, we didn't interval we, train oh, today okay. because... We? So the dog does it as the well? The dog does it as well. Oh, you dragged the dog along. The, okay. No, but we didn't do it today because on Saturday we went to my friend Tom's, mm. uh, where, who has a beautiful, enormous lactose retriever. And him and Hector had a afternoon of <laughs> running through the heather up on up on the, up on the moors, and then trying to hump each other <laughs> for, <laughs> for for about three hours while we were eating a, a delicious lamb so meal. That they were cooked. taking it in turns to try and do the humping. Well, so they're, they're, neither of them have been done. I don't think we need to. Do we really? No, need we do. To go, oh, it's we quite do funny. need to go into this. So oh, neither, neither of them have been done. They're both both they're both intact. So they both have a sort of dominance thing. They're not. Neither Bodie's the other dog, but neither of them are kind of. Um, My mind's telling me no. My <laughs> body, it's telling me yes. Is that what they were doing? Basically, yeah. <laughs> but, so, do I remember? So Bodie is a flat-toed retriever who is probably four times the size of Hector. So Bodie was sort of properly grinding away at Hector, but Hector kept trying to riddle around. So we were watching from the kitchen, and they were in the garden, and basically Bodie was sort of grinding at Hector's sort of at the air in front of his face or at his <laughs> oh side. God. And then Hector would sort of sit there for a bit and think, all right, all right, all right. 
But when small darts can't, he obviously couldn't grab hold of Bodhi and thrust. But so when, the way they show dominance, they they sort of stand up with both their paws on their back around the neck, and that shows dominance as well. So Bodhi would have a thrust, and then Hector would jump, would squirrel out of it, then jump up at his side, and Bodhi would sit there for a bit, going like this, and then then Hector would would be forced back down onto the ground and Bodhi would thrust How long again. did you stand and watch about, this? Why were you not out there with a hose? Yes, to stop them. They couldn't. We tried to. We, I hosed them, hosed, hosed them both with cold water to try and That just makes them. it worse. But it did. They just, they, that was all. There was no, there wasn't a single bark. Nobody barked. They were just happy doing that for two it's hours. It's like a doggy wet t-shirt competition. And then Hector, start spraying them down. Hector came home on Saturday night and basically slept all of Saturday night and all of Sunday. Just wasn't interested in anything. We can't work out whether he was traumatised, <laughs> tired, or kind of in love. Was he smoking cigarettes? I got a text from my mate, from my mate Tom, saying, um, "Is Hector all right? He's not too. He's not upset by what happened." And I went, "No, no, he's fine." And, and Tom just said, "Yeah, Bodie's had a cigar on." <laughs>